This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Today's podcast is a special double edition. The first is a roundtable discussion on the history of the CIA in Southeast Asia, and the second is a look at current events involving the Central Intelligence Agency. Welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and we have a special uh, full house here. There's seven of us around this table uh, right now, and uh, we are here uh, to talk about the CIA in Southeast Asia. Um, this is a group who have been involved in, the, in, in, a, in a course here at NIU, the Spies, Lies, and Secret Wars, a history of the CIA in the world, and where we looked at a different case file uh, every week in where the CIA was engaged uh, somewhere else in the world. And roughly half of those were Southeast Asia, um, which tells a lot about <laughs> the depths of its, of its interactions with, uh, with CIA in Southeast Asia. Um, but we'll go around and quickly introduce ourselves and then, and then uh, jump right in. Andrew, you want to lead us off? Sure. My name is Andrew Waite. I'm a business major focusing in management with a minor in Southeast Asian Studies, and I particularly focus on Indonesia. Thanks. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Sam Bunting. Uh, I am a law student here at NIU going into my third year, uh, and my focus is international law and dealing with specifically impunity and extrajudicial killings and enforced uh, disappearances in the Philippines. My name is Matt Yagel. I am a former student here, graduated uh, two years ago with a PhD. Um, I focus on uh, U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia and Cambodia specifically. And uh, what, what I teach at uh, St. Xavier University currently. Thanks. Uh, I'm Costa. I am a junior history major. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm a junior, so it's my third year at NIU. Um, I'm focusing on Indonesia. <coughs> Hi, my name is Claire Spahn. I'm a anthropology history double major here at NIU, and tonight I'll be focusing on the Hmong. Thanks. Uh, okay, so there's um, uh, a couple of you, Costa and, and Andrew, in addition, in addition are focusing on on Indonesia. Um, we we looked at we looked at records in our course about the uh, about the involvement, uh, uh, the kind of subversionist foreign policy, the infamous. Uh, 58 um, uh, in, uh, support for for rebellion in Indonesia that was failed, especially the the downing of a of a fighter pilot, um, a bomber, uh, CIA agent Pope, uh, and the kind of the embarrassing outing that uh, you know Sukarno was, was had been claiming for for years that uh, the CIA was was undermining his regime and. Uh, the, the U.S. had claimed, of course, this was not true. This was all just you know, kind of a fiction of his imagination. And, and now we have concrete evidence of a poorly spray-painted airplane um, American bomber that is shot down, I think, over Maluku or Ambon, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, and so it's, it's kind of out in the open, but it, 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 it reveals a larger, and especially as part of a, a time period that Indonesia is not alone uh, in in this intense period of, of the CIA in, uh, involvement around the world, uh, you know, Guatemala, Iran, etc. So, um, uh, Costa wanted to, to talk a bit about um, 
65, which is a controversial um, era of CAA involvement. And uh, uh, maybe you can tell us, give us a bit of a context and tell us uh, the role of the CAA in 65. Okay, so um, I, I mean, it's similar to other roles. They come in Indonesia because they're scared of communist influence in the region, and they're scared that uh, Suharto is going to sympathize with the left, um, which as I think, I mean, from what I was reading... Or Su- Sukarno, right, yeah. Yeah, yep. Um, Sukarno kind of did the opposite of that, and there was obviously a, a really, really, really big politicide that the United States vehemently denied them being involved in, even though eventually there was proof, like Dr. Jones said, that um, that the CIA was involved, maybe not, hu- I mean, not hugely, but they were involved there, and there were documents saying, like, okay... This is a list of suspected communist uh, sympathizers. Maybe do something about them. Um, I know that in one, uh, there is one document, I think, with the British and the Americans, where they talk about how, like, I, I forgot if it's they say that they should be liquidating Sukarno or Suharto, but they, it's not, um, I can't recall exactly the, the details. I think that they do, they do say that they need to liquidate him. And I guess, like what you said about you're right. There's a there's an uh, there's an assassination. Yeah. Um, the, uh, not an not an attempt, but certainly a uh, um, uh, a, a plan that is hatched. I will I will I will take credit for um, publishing that. Uh, I think for the first time, the 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 um, this was in a report uh, in this CIA dump about the dealt with the Congo and. Um, and uh, you know, it was dealing with uh, talking about Cuba, and and so uh, Sukarno was referenced as like, well, maybe we should um, we should think about getting rid of him too. And does anyone know how to do this? And what? And so uh, they, they did a kind of an investigation, and it wasn't uh, um, nothing seems to have come of it. But certainly there was that is an a bullet point on on the t- so so yeah, it's not coming out of nowhere. And I mean, with that and then with later on, I mean, it was, I think it was like, what, 40 more years before something actually, there was like a, like a leaked his, like history of CIA where they talked about how they were involved in Indonesia. And then they came out and said, no, we weren't. And I... Yeah, there was a, there was a, um, it was really declassified kind of accidentally, um, and then tried to be it was reclassified, but it was it was already in the public sphere by then, and and that's where some of the smoking guns about money and um, um, lists and names were out. And I think one of the quotes off of the top of my head is something like, you know, that this the CIA is they're asking their exposure to this, and somebody says, you know, this is it's as it's as minimal as any black bag operation can be um, expected. And you know, there's a there, there's a clear sense that. Um, that, and 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 the wink and the nod to to Suharto and and the rest of the mm-hmm. Indian regime that like hey if you and that became a common strategy that like rather than us trying to overthrow like let's throw out clear signals to 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 generals and others like should you do this like you know we've got your back and kind of wink wink yeah let me I'll just jump in real quick because the. <clears throat> You know, with the rhetoric from Sukarno is that, hey, the um, CIA is uh, after me, um, you know, things like this where, 
the United States, um, or in, you know, maybe the media at the time would maybe portray him as being paranoid. You'd see very similar rhetoric with Sihanouk in Cambodia, and Sihanouk after he was uh, overthrown um, in 1970, his his memoirs, his first, uh, he has many. Uh, but first is called my war with the CIA, and you know the reaction from you know the United States and others is once again right. This is kind of a lot of sort of paranoid conspiracy theory stuff. But and you know Sihanouk very prone to exaggerate, um, but a lot of it checks out and is realistic. And what you were saying with um, kind of the wink and the nod to military leaders. Uh, with the case of Indonesia, you see the same thing in Cambodia as well, with uh, exactly. Lon Nol coming to power. Uh, Lon Nol, who even went over to Indonesia to uh, train uh, in the late 60s. Um, and there are rumors that you know, perhaps he was getting the FYI on how to you know, successfully pull this type of thing off. Um, so, yeah, I just thought I'd kind of throw that in. This is not just one in a va- happening in a vacuum with Indonesia. As a quick add-on to that, <clears throat> uh, Indonesian president, with like the assistance of President Nixon, was actually sending uh, M16s and AK-47s over to Lon Nol to help overthrow mm-hmm. the prince uh, with $18 million from the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. So it's all a nice, tidy little spider's web. Very nice spider's web. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the, the one of the benefits, um, you know, where we, we, we focus on... a particular country or you focus on a particular maybe even region but then having a having a global or a comparative outlook you really things start to come into focus of of you know like uh patterns that happen uh, in in particular time frames and it, it becomes it becomes all the more clear so so indonesia is um i you know, there, there's there's clear evidence in in the 50s there's there's also evidence um uh of, of support certainly uh in the, in the 60s and they they get their man right we get we get suharto we get the um this is the dictator we're looking for um it's someone who is uh i mean what do, what do they like about suharto what is the u.s um uh why are they jazzed about having um, Suharto versus Sukarno? As far as Suharto goes, he's much more willing, he was much more willing to side with the West as opposed to uh, flirting with other communist elements such as the Soviet Union and China as Sukarno was. In fact, once, um, once Suharto came into power, the CIA was pretty thrilled about it, um, referencing a legacy of ashes written by Tim Weiner. Um, the, the American government wanted to help out, um, give Suharto support right from the very beginning. However, to do so would have been too politically risky, so they utilized the CIA as kind of a dark funnel to send him, um, as it says here, $500,000 worth of medical supplies, which they knew would just be sold for cash and then be used to buy weapons and whatever they needed. Additionally, they provided lists of convenient Indonesian communists that needed to be sent away for a while, which just led to them never coming back. So Suharto, uh, I think, was used as a useful tool 
um, to do away with the dirty business that the CIA couldn't accomplish on its own at the time while furthering, furthering U.S. interests, not only in Indonesia, but also the region. And the, the, you know, the, the specter that haunts Southeast Asia is, is, is East Asia, especially that, you know, the, 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 the loss of China, quote unquote, that, you know, that we, that if, if, if the U S had only done more to help Chiang Kai-shek to help the nationalists, then, then we wouldn't have, um, you know, the sort of the, 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 you know, the world's largest countries going, going communist and, um, you know, and 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 in violation of uh, you know several countries' sovereignty, especially Burma, the the U.S. continuing to fight um, in vain to to support um, you know the anti Chinese uh, factions, KMT and others. But but uh, that uh, the Korean War and the and the loss of China are, are just you know the, these these specters that haunt um, U.S. foreign policymakers to the extent that they. You know the the the, the hardline hardline in Indonesia, a hardline in Vietnam. Uh, it it's it, I mean it's counterfactual to know you know would they have done the same thing if if uh, if East Asia hadn't fallen the way it did. But um, uh, we know that it we know that it did, and uh, this uh, uh, a kind of principled. Um, anti-communist stand at, 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 at any cost was the, um, was the result. And, and Southeast Asian states were, uh, were caught in that, um, in that policy, which didn't have much to do with their own, um, if it fell into their national interest, great. If it didn't, then that's, uh, that's too bad. So, so, you know, the, the, the countervailing themes of newly independent countries, uh, for the first time having their own autonomy and independence and, you know, your, your, your Sihanouks, your Sukarnos who want, um, they just want to dictate their own foreign policy, their own, uh, uh, autonomous, uh, path forward. Uh, they're finding it increasingly impossible, um, to, to choose a side. Sihanouk, uh, Matt, he, he, uh, he flirted, he, he skated that line, Maybe more successfully than some of the others, although you know he was he was overthrown. But uh, I don't know. How would you give his grade for uh, non-aligned neutralist uh, uh, letter grade for yeah. Sienuk? All right, uh, <laughs> let me grade your reign. Um, you can edit that out, by the way. Uh, he 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 was he was. I mean, there's a lot of things you could um, you can say about. Sihanouk that would not be flattering, but he was pretty skilled at sort of navigating this this dance between with China, with the Soviet Union, with the United States, with his neighbors, Thailand, North Vietnam, yeah. South Vietnam. He, he got independence when Vietnam didn't. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, before, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he's sort of, right, he is, depending on what... Um, he feels is in, I guess, the best interest of maintaining his power uh, locally and then also maintaining independence, I think, is, is where he focuses on. So at times he is <coughs> quite friendly with the United States um, and at times he's definitely not, right? Breaks off, uh, you know, cuts off all military aid in 63 and in 65 
breaks relations with them, which won't be normalized till 69, so about four years there. Um, and yeah, so he, right, to a degree, he is successful. Um, and yeah, he does. He does what he does. Is you know, he's a fascinating. He's a fascinating. So so um, so Andrew the the, you know, Indonesia gets its guy, and then um, what are some of the it's the CIA's uh, post um, sixty five involvements uh, in Indonesia. Um, if we were to talk about all of them, we'd be here for quite a while. So I'll, I'll keep it brief. One of the Your things, <laughs> one of the things I, I've looked at um, through researching, like on the CIA documents or the NSA archives, is the U.S. government and CIA activities um, concerning Timor Leste. So when Suharto was eyeing the prize to take from Portugal. Um, he, he said to President Nixon, after he had nullified the strength, uh, quote-unquote, of the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, he was now looking to um, kind of take over Timor-Leste as well. And Nixon, knowing full well that, you know, numbers vary, but hundreds of thousands to millions of people were killed in that, was complicit in allowing that to continue. And um, President Ford as well, was had a had a decent amount of well direct knowledge on the case as well. Uh, President Ford was actually in Indonesia uh, just right before Indonesia um, fully invaded Timor Leste, and was pretty much told to his face, along with Secretary Kissinger, that um, they were going to invade. And Suharto said, uh, "We want your understanding on this matter." And publicly, the, the United States uh, did not fully support. Um, it said that, you know, we were monitoring the concerns of the Indonesian government, but privately, right. uh, they provided 90% of the weapons that were used to slaughter hundreds of thousands of people. Um, they weren't alone in this with other allies, such as, you know, Australia, um, Britain specifically provided tanks and armored vehicles and such. But um, the people that were killed were killed with American-made weapons, and they kind of wanted to keep their distance in case that ever got brought to light. So they've had their they've had their why do you, why do you think the you know because the U.S. directly doesn't have a lot of material gain in yeah, I was just going to ask in, what, what is the U.S. in in East Timor? Yeah. So why why do you think it's why do this? Why give the green light? Greenlight uh, was given primarily um, just because of the business interest. Um, the American government was practically salivating over the abundance of uh, natural rubber, the most in the world, massive, uh, massive oil reserves, all these natural resources. You maybe to keep so so you mean to keep so to keep Indonesia on its side, it's got to let it do what it it's got to support. Kind of let uh, kind of let them do as they wish with East Timor. And then a business-friendly Suharto would continue to uh, award generous contracts, um, such as uh, logging rights and rainforest allotments to U.S. companies, um, drilling rights, and um, divvying up the minerals between uh, different mineral um, 
sites between different countries as well. So in order to keep the gravy train rolling, pretty much, they had to be complicit in these things. So yeah, that's a really like like a double, you know, twice removed. You know, Timor is the unfortunate. It's not even directly in the path, you know. Of I mean, well, you know, the the some of the some of the the again, they're worried about you know, leftist elements, uh, in, in, in the resistance possibly popping up, but, but that's not the big story in Timor. It's just that it's a collateral damage for, um, the support of interest. Indo- yeah. yeah. So Indonesian support. And that, um, yeah, the economic influence, it, it's good evidence for, um, kind of the William Appleman Williams, Wisconsin school of, um, kind of foreign policy theorizing on that. It's has to do with economics, economic, Imperatives. So, I mean, that's all the money. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, there's many other. I mean, Guatemala is a real, I mean, that's overthrew that uh, government for bananas. I mean, there is a lot of evidence to uh, sort of support that sort of framework of uh, looking at the history of foreign policy. I actually uh, found a quote from Richard Nixon that said, Indonesia is the richest hoard of natural resources and the greatest prize in Southeast Asia in reference to the deal, that deal being the blood on the hands of the U.S. government as far as Timor-Leste goes in order to, you know, achieve that. Yeah, so it's, uh, again, um, uh, the kind of ends justify the means mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in, in foreign policy. So the, You see uh, the same thing in Vietnam with Eisenhower talking about all the tin and tungsten that's available there and uh, why that's why we need to support uh, the South Vietnamese government, which is you know brand new South Vietnamese government. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, um, <coughs> I mean, so mineral, financial, um, strategic, in the, maybe thinking about the Philippines, uh, Sam, that, you know, it, it, it provides, it, it has its own um, very entangled past with the United States. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, which maybe you'll bring up bring up a bit. So it, it's it's not as it's not as bizarre that the U.S. would be there as it may be a, a, your Cambodia, for, uh, for example. But um, it it like like Indonesia, it it gets uh, it gets in U.S. gets in bed with um, dictators that are. Um, pretty unpalatable by any objective standard, but uh, again, better to have better to have someone on your side. Better to have um, an, an ally in the in the Cold War. So, um, oh, absolutely. Tell us a bit about uh, CIA in the Philippines. Just, I mean, just kind of going on the 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 vein of just anti communism in Southeast Asia. I mean, that was definitely a motivating factor um, as to why the U.S. didn't meddle with, I guess. Uh, helping to remove Marcos from power. They, they knew very well that his end goal was to just sort of consolidate and retain power for just absolutely as long as possible, um, which was a large reason behind his implementing martial law. Um, and he, he did it gradually. I mean, one of the things that he did was just sort of gradually, you know, take over the judiciary by being over to fire judges at will and appoint new ones and getting final say um, in what they do, which a lot of people objected to, which was something that the U.S. even said in some of their memoranda that was definitely uh, under or not so much underhanded, but a ploy to sort of consolidate exactly to get rid of the uh, independence of the judiciary there. A slow boil. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
as far as keeping him in power as well, he was he was more compliant with, he was more conservative. He was very, uh, he 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 knew how to play the field between giving in to uh, U.S. you know anti-communist rhetoric as well as being able to play to a more nationalistic front, um, and 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 playing to what the people in the Philippines wanted. Um, I know uh, some of the, some of the reasons why the U.S. you know wanted to be largely present. Um, was the just the strategic value of the Philippines in Southeast Asia. Um, during the time while Marcos was uh, implementing martial law in his presidency, uh, some of their base contracts at the time were coming up. Um, and some of you know, the U.S., in their opinion, was that it's, it's going to be easier to negotiate with someone who's already friendly to the U.S. so that we can get what we want in the Philippines, get the bases we want, be able to put the men where we want in the Philippines. Um, than taking a chance with someone new that they may not, you know, know if he's going to be more friendly to the U.S. or less friendly. Uh, so their strategy was stick with the devil that you already know. Yeah, and the you know, like you're, I was thinking about Marcos and the judiciary, <clears throat> or or you know, uh, Suharto with you know almost every institution in <laughs> in Indonesia. Like the the um, you know, we wonder why. Some some of these states have have challenges with um, uh, with with bureaucracies with their infrastructure. I mean, the, the, there was every attempt to to undermine them. Uh, you know, at 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 all levels uh, to 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 maintain um, you know their their support and U.S. complicity, or especially in the Philippines, like actual access to to this very strategic um, bases and um, kind of a military kind of linchpin, um, and so yeah, th- those were just those were just secondary. You know, well, it's a judiciary. It's a judiciary, so you know, whatever. So <laughs> I know you, you've you've done some research that um, doesn't necessarily involve the CIA, but w- what are what are some of the legacies of a weakened judiciary in? In the Philippines, oh, just uh, the rampant uh, impunity in the Philippines that I mean, they struggle with today. Um, they 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 have a serious backlog of cases um, and just a serious issue with um, just unpunished. Well, I mean, I guess right now it's they're being punished, but they've had a very long history of just rampant drug crimes. Um, but the <laughs> right, <laughs> those are being punished <laughs> yeah. um, specifically, uh, extrajudicially. But, but, the, the main problem that uh, the people in the Philippines are, are dealing with right now uh, is just just the fact that they aren't able to separate, um, you know, politically um, from political from the judiciary. I, I know, for instance, uh, you know, a prosecutor charges, you know, the offender. But however, most of, you know, barangay pro- uh, prosecutors have strong relations to the local government and those officials. And most of the people being implicated in these cases are these these oligarch families? Um, so nobody's being uh, brought to justice for these these crimes. And one of the things that the U.S. has observed, and and especially in the Marcos era and now, is is um, in sort of you know an attempt to sort of uh, I guess allay fears of you know crime not getting punished. A few people will be you know sort of made examples of and not punished very harshly. Um, just like, you know, now Duterte has been punishing a couple officers have been brought, you know, charges against, and just like with Marcos, there were a few officers 
brought forward, but they weren't punished too harshly for what was going on there at the time. Um, and the CIA was well aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of these enforced killings and, and, and uh, extradition or extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances had to do with just a consolidation of power um, and just keeping his political opponents off their feet and ensuring that he always had um, a majority in, in both houses there. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting situation that's going on over there, especially, you know, just with just especially with impunity, at least from my point of view, taking it as a law student. So what's your uh, um, gaze into the crystal ball here? What do you, what do you <laughs> think uh, there's, there's been a kind of uh, a dramatic shakeup of uh, uh, new leadership in the Philippines? Oh, absolutely. In Duterte. Um, I, mean, how do you- I mean, his role, I mean, his, his uh, current party holds, I think, well over 80% of their House of Representatives. And I think it's a House of uh, just, a, I mean, maybe about 250, 260, and he holds like 220 of the seats in, in the House. So, I mean, there's no one there to, I mean, go against him. What do you think the, the, his, his role, the Philippines' role with U.S. intelligence will be um, under Duterte? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I think that it's going to be very similar to what was going on with Marcos because a lot of the behaviors that Marcos was displaying and what, what the CIA pointed out in, in their memoranda is really similar to what Duterte has been doing um, today, just with some slight differences. Um, for instance, Marcos's big thing was just going after, you know, political extremists, you know, communists, and things like that. And Duterte's big appeal is going after drug abusers um, and terrorists. Um, infrastructure is another another thing that Duterte's uh, really harping under his his new plan of Duterteanomics. Uh, which is something is that, did he quit? Is, that's, did that's they, the coin term. That's, that's what's on the website and under his, uh, 10 point program, uh, Duterte economics. Uh, and it's, it's, he's really, he's really advocating, you know, finishing, you know, road projects, bridges, you know, having, you know, efficient ports, um, and, you know, just right. dealing with title offices for land reform. Land reform was a big deal during Marcus's uh, uh, martial law. Some real populist points, too, that he's... It does not oh. sound like Reaganomics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Voodoo. Um, but what, what's interesting, at least from my reading, is that they've both, so they've both been really smart in playing to, you know, the oligarchs, you know, being pro-business while at the same time you know, trying to appease, you know, the peasant farmers in, in land reform and handling titles um, and making sure that people have a piece of land to farm on. Um, it's a, a, lot, a, a more similarities such as, you know, just bureau, bureau, uh, bureaucratic efficiency, uh, things like that, just sort of trying to, you know, go against and, you know, I guess the stigma of corruption in the co- uh, country is what both of uh, you know, both Marcos and Duterte are trying to fight against. Um, and what was pointed out in, in some of my readings was just the fact that, you know, Marcos, just like Duterte, used the really, you know, loud and flamboyant rhetoric, but, you know, at the same time, a lot of his promises weren't coming due, which which now with uh, the recent case regarding sovereignty of the, the South China Sea or Philippine Sea, Duterte hasn't really enforced ownership of that area at all since they were you know declared the rightful owners uh so it's just there's a lot of a lot of you know behavioral and and i guess political and social and i guess economic similarities going on there that the u.s observed during marcos and i think that they're probably still observing now and i think they're probably going to take 
sort of the same approach to Duterte um, as they did with Marcos and sort of, you know, try and find a, a, a line to go with. Um, I know at the same time Marcos threatened to uh, play ball with Russia and China the same way Duterte is today. So we're seeing a lot of the same patterns that we saw back in the 70s and 80s with Marcos. You see he was he was invited to the White House. Um, I did, yeah. But then but then he said he might be too <laughs> might be too busy. Yeah, he's talking about Duterteonomics right now. He's, he's getting that out there. I'd like to point out it has its own Facebook page. <laughs> Whoa, Duterteonomics? Yeah. Yeah, I looked it up. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's a friend that. Like okay. you follow it now. Do you friend it or follow do you like it? Yeah. You got you got to like it and share it so that everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, do that associated with your name. <laughs> Is varied, but in, in many ways, but also consistent. You know, it it it's going after, it's pursuing economic interest. It's pursuing ideological enemies, um, especially in in in, in the left. Um, and uh, you know, some of the some of the forgotten participants in this in this struggle are some of the some of the ethnic minorities who um, the U.S. used. Uh, to to pursue its war in in Indochina, especially. Um, so, Claire, tell us a bit about the Hmong. Uh, there are there are a lot of them in the United States, and this isn't an accident. Why is that? This is not. Um, so, as you said, the Hmong are an ethnic minority from Southeast Asia who uh, likely originated from China and were historically um, pushed out of various areas where they had tried to um, make their home in Southeast Asia. So. The Hmong, um, at the time of the Vietnam conflict um, and the secret war with the CIA, um, were living mostly in the mountains um, around North Vietnam and Laos. And because of their um, knowledge of this terrain and because they were, according to one CIA-sponsored history, combatively anti-Vietnamese, they were approached by the CIA to act as... um, as allies and act as guerrilla fighters on the ground during the secret war. Um, they were reached out to in the early 1960s. So it's a secret war because we were never officially at war with Laos, right? That's officially, a, right. Yeah. And um, the CIA took um, precautions to keep most knowledge of it out of the, I think, the American public sphere for a while. Um, the... The CIA was um, using a secret airline at the time and choosing not to share this information with the public, according to um, William Leary's CIA air operations in Laos on the CIA's website. So, the infamous Air America—that's what you're referring right. to, yeah, yeah. Um, That's Matt's favorite movie. Is it called Air America? I forget the, the Mel Gibson, <clears throat> like the. Oh, I haven't seen that movie. Oh think. man. Historically accurate Mel Gibson movie, <laughs> probably. Right. Yeah. So it's good. That one of those. It's 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 a it's a it's a good bad movie. Good bad. Yeah. Okay. Um. So as we were talking about the like the patterns of the CIA being worried about um, communism and making strategic decisions, the CIA was worried that actually a high-ranking Hmong official in the Laotian uh, Royal Army, Toby Lefeng, was. Um, 
they were worried that he was sympathetic to the North Vietnamese communist leaders, um, which led them to contact, um, make contact with a man named Vang Pao, who was also a member of the Royal Asian Army um, and a commander of a troop of Hmong soldiers. And so the, the CIA reached out to Vang Pao to create an alliance, thinking, you know, he's already, he's commanding a troop he's this of... charismatic, he'd, he, you know, got prom- prominence in the in fighting the... Like the French, he'd been he'd been he'd a, been trained by the French, decorated, yeah, yeah, um, and and uh, you know, anti-Vietnamese fighter. I mean, and so he uh, he seems like a natural ally. Yeah, and I think um, as we can see in in Tim Weiner's Legacy of Ashes, we can see a, a pattern of the CIA reaching out to locally <coughs> local oppressed minorities to be you know kind of the on the ground warriors going into some of these conflicts. Um, so we do see that with the Hmong, and we see, um, we, we can read about uh, Vang Pao worrying, expressing his worries to the CIA when they approached him um, for them to be allies, saying, look, we, we fought on the side of the French, and the French abandoned us after their conflict was over. Um, it led to you know, more oppression. Is the, is the United States going to do the same thing, or are you going to provide us with aid? And... Um, in my research, I came across two different instances where a member of the CIA is reported to have promised either aid and a safe haven or resettlement, aid and resettlement, to um, the Hmong. Um, one is by a CIA officer, Stuart Methven. Um, this was reported in Thomas Aaron's Undercover Army's CIA and Surrogate Warfare in Laos, which was um, a CIA-sponsored history So of were, the these, were these war. written promises, or were these... Uh... These were verbal promises to Vang Pao um, with a small number of witnesses and without official CIA backing, of course. Um, what so does the CIA officially back? <laughs> very little, I would say, yeah. Um, but... This promise was taken, this promise and a later promise by Colonel William Lair, also acting unofficially for the CIA, which is um, reported in Keith Quincy's monograph, Harvesting Peiches Wheat, The Hmong and Secret War, The Hmong and America's Secret War in Laos, um, that Colonel Lair's promise was that the Hmong would be provided with a safe territory in which to settle after the conflict. And depending on whether you believe that one or both of these promises actually happened, depending on whether or not you believe that, you know, that the CIA and the United States should act responsibly for these people that they asked to go to war for them. Anyway, um, the Hmong took it and, and, um, Vang Pao and other Hmong officials would, you know, remind their troops of this during the conflict and remind their people that the the CIA and the United States were going to come help them after this was all over. And so it kind of became part of a, um, a culture, it, it was a cultural rhetoric for the Hmong that the CIA and the United States were going to help it. They considered it to be a formal treaty, actually, um, according to Keith Quincy's history. Um, so, and the costs to the Hmong during the Secret War were large. About 35,000 Hmong guerrilla soldiers died fighting, and about one-third of the Hmong population died of starvation and disease. Um, a lot of the Hmong were sent to camps, either for refugees or for prisoners, in Laos, Vietnam, and later Thailand, where they died of exposure, starvation, disease, exertion, beatings, and suicide. Death rates in the camp rose from the 1960s when this conflict 
started through the 1980s when they were still living there um, despite USAID funding. So um, in terms of the CIA living up to the promise of resettlement or evacuation, the first evacuation didn't occur until 1975, at which point um, Vang Pao, along with 2,500 people, were evacuated from Longchang. Um, this was two years after all American troops had left Vietnam, and I think one year after American troops had left Laos. So you, you see an amount of time where um, the Hmong are saying, well, look, we, we've, we fought for you. This is what you promised, and just this like stagnation of um, aid going to them. Um, it, it was during this time that people in America started to learn about the Hmong and learn about you know their sacrifices and their their aid to the CIA during this um, conflict. And when the Hmong started to finally be evacuated and resettled in America, they were some were sponsored by the CIA, but they were also sponsored by church groups, activists, and then later on um, their own family members who were already over there. Um, we also see that they lacked a lot of support once they arrived in assimilating. Um, they they had a hard time learning the language and the culture and the laws. Um, but now there are lots of Hmong in the United States, also um, in <coughs> France and Australia, as well as some other some other countries in almost every continent. So, yeah. So the Hmong <coughs> are a, a good example of a continuing of a colonial policy, like the you know, like the British of isolating minorities groups to fight you know, against the majority or to, to, to ally oneself with. And then, um, yeah, when, when, uh, if you're not successful in your war, then, then they're, they're vulnerable and the Hmong not only suffered during the war, but then they, you know, many of them had to leave in order to just, to, to, to survive. And so, um, yeah, there's a there's a. Um, did you go to the the? I work at the, the museum. Right. The the tell us about the Hmong exhibit. So the Hmong exhibit at the Pick Museum of Anthropology at NIU was um, last semester's exhibit. It was um, open actually most of the the spring and summer of, of last year and through the fall, and that exhibit was interesting because um, the the curator of the exhibit, Laura McDowell Hopper, had um, gone and met with. Hmong Americans and people who um, were first or second or half generation um, Hmong American and and discussed with them like what do you want to see in an exhibit about you and a lot of them said look when we are when we are included in exhibits in museums and when people learn about us they learn only about the secret war and they learn that we fought there and they don't know that we are here in America and we have continued to survive and we are not gone so um, the Hmong exhibit was called Hmong American Voices, and it explored um, Hmong American identity and the kind of the negotiation between um, the Hmong identity and having to deal with um, status as an immigrant or children of immigrants and um, negotiating, you know, a, a new identity that is not Hmong and is not American and having to deal with people who are in both of those identities not understanding why you cannot conform to one and not the other. Um, there were a lot of discussions of Hmong cultural traditions that have a hard time making it over here, a lot um, a discussion of kind of activism that Hmong Americans are especially 
um, involved in. Um, there has been there have been instances of police brutality against Hmong Americans, and so a lot of Hmong Americans really identif- identify with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there's also um, polygamy and um, child marriage that goes on um, with usually typically older Hmong men living in the United States bringing their second and third very young wives over and um, having to deal with you know, the fact that that's not allowed, so they would claim that their wives were their sisters or other family members in order to bring the whole family over. Um, but there are there are actually still um, instances of human trafficking connected to the Hmong and these, these cultural identities that some people continue to express. They still have a, um, there's still a web, pre- even though the exhibit's not currently up, I think it's going to be traveling and then there's is the still on the website can you find uh, stuff about the Hmong exhibit on the, in the I pic- believe so we've been updating the website I think uh, yeah you can still find that it's a, it was a great um, great exhibit um, well let me give a plug out to our our students people should go on to um, there's gonna be a website um, for for the course up soon uh, that some students are working on, but also I'll say that I'm proud of there are many hundreds of of entries to uh, Wikipedia have been made by our students. Um, uh, if you if you look at the CIA CIA activities in X whatever country, um, probably a decent I I sometime I'm going to have one of these. Uh, uh, students uh, who work, who's in data figured out for me the the, the uh, percentage of uh, that our course has contributed, but it's but it's significant, and especially it's it's contributing um, uh, documents and narrative and stuff from from the sources uh, to this to this this open source, and so we're using open source um, declassified records but trying to weave those into the narrative and so um yeah go and check out uh uh ci activities in country of your choice right as every history professor says go check wikipedia yeah right you you know it's the best information because anyone in the world can be editing it um actually what's interesting about and our students know there have been some uh uh heavy <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not been it's not been unproblematic uh the We've been accused of uh, what's the word sock puppeting, sock puppeting which is uh, um, means that uh, you create like a fifty different identities and then and then uh, attack a CIA or or a, or a Wikipedia page and try to change it. So because so many of the students are working on you know whatever uh, Cambodia or Laos or the Philippines on a given day. Uh, all from a similar uh, IP address geographically. They think like, oh, this is clearly... I mean, whatever <laughs> Commander Jones wants, we do. So. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean... I've, I've, what is I've the set, narrative, I've, I've set you in, I've set you in motion. <laughs> exactly, he gets it. Uh, and, um, it's like a but, terrorist group. Go yeah, in there and, and make everything and, historically. Uh, we've, been, we've been, and we're part of the wiki education, like, even though it's, it's an interesting... That it's a... A loose command structure would be a yeah, generous. It's, a, it's of, an interesting of, uh, case. Yeah, that. that uh, <laughs> yeah, I've actually read their comments. That's like, ridiculous. They're so perplexed. <laughs> like we think this is some kind of class. And like, how dare they? It's, it's like, a, oh, I'm sorry. We're just you know, they, helping they, the world. Well, uh, 
let me thank everyone for for contributing and for for the class and uh, yeah, stay tuned and um, we hope we hope to have more of your uh, continuing involvement in uh, uncovering the activities of the CIA in Southeast Asia. So thanks. And now, the CIA and current events. Welcome to this special edition of Crossroads. Um, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and today we have a full house. There are one, two, three, four, like eight people in the studio on two levels. So it's a real, uh, it's a real blockbuster uh, today we are t- we're here talking about um, current affairs and the Central Int- Central Intelligence Agency. This comes out of uh, a course, uh, Spies, Lies, and Secret Wars, um, History of the CIA in the World, that I'm teaching uh, on, on campus, actually uh, on, on the internet as well. Uh, so first time meeting some of our guests here. But... Um, so we've uh, we've been studying deep into the archives uh, documents all semester, and so we're uh, we're going to talk about some of the stuff we found, and and today's episode, especially dealing with uh, current events issues. But let me uh, introduce uh, first, maybe my co-host, and then and then we can go around to the rest of the panel. So Nate, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Nate Rankin, uh, master student here at NIU, uh, graduating this semester. I study U.S. foreign policy, uh, primarily in the Cold War period with the Third World. And, uh, yeah, happy to be here today. Thanks. How about you, Kelly? Um, I'm Kelly Cass, a first-year master's student at Northern. I study medical history in the 20th century. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah. All right, Will? I'm Will Whitehavich. I'm also a first-year master's student um, in history, and I study U.S. foreign relations uh, around World War One. Great. Rachel? Hi there. I'm Rachel Skog. I'm actually in the English department, and um, I do second language acquisition, teaching English as a second language, and I'm doing the graduate certificate through the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. Good plug, by the way. (laughs) And finally, last but not least. Yeah, that comes in handy. Um, (laughs) Matt Yeagle. I am a foreign... Just a joke. uh, (laughs) Foreign relations uh, specialist, U.S. foreign relations... um, Graduated here about two years ago, uh, PhD, and I study Southeast Asia, Cambodia. Yeah, Matt has a forthcoming book. Uh, what's our is our is our title the same? Uh, what's the? Well, they haven't told me to change it yet. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, what what is my title? Uh, Sun Yuk Tan and the transformation of uh, Cambodia deals with the nationalism in Cambodia and uh, U.S. Um, relations with Cambodia during that period, mostly focusing on uh, World War II through up through the uh, uh, Lan Nol regime up to 1975. Yeah, so Matt is on an earlier podcast, so uh, check that out. Um, yeah, riveting stuff. It is. <laughs> it's it's well rated. All right, so um, That's of the beer, I think the Nate's helped me co co host here, so maybe I'll uh, I'll pass it over to him. Um, do you want to get us started with our first topic? Did you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, under a, a broad scope of things, uh, we uh, thought we'd talk about morality in the intel community and uh, morality in terms of, of our, our foreign policy decisions with the in, uh, intel community in mind. 
Um, and in the first place, we, we thought we would kick it over to uh, Rachel and let her discuss kind of what we've seen going on recently in terms of the North Korean situation and uh, some accusations that have come out of that country recently. Okay. Well, I'll just set up the scenario that um, we're looking at this week. Obviously, there's a lot more. Um, hot off the press. Hot off the press. Um, so Pyongyang has accused um, South Korea and the United States of colluding to assassinate Kim Jong-un. Um, specifically, they are accusing the CIA of assisting in selecting the biochemical weapon and um, in promising to deliver it to the assassin. Um, Maybe they'll spray him in the face at an airport or something. I was just going to say, this, <laughs> this story is pretty pretty crazy, but it's not quite Kuala Lumpur Airport crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but it does involve a lumberjack, I believe. Um, <laughs> what? I didn't see hear that. Yeah, the North Korean who um, hasn't been named, and we don't know where he is, um, who is accused of colluding with the CIA, was being a lumberjack in Russia and was... So, um, purportedly, let's see. Okay, I have a quote here. Ideolo- ideologically corrupted and bribed. And so he was supposed to come back to North Korea in 2014 and kill Kim Jong-un. We don't know what happened between then and now, but he is currently in custody somewhere. Um, and I believe it was just yesterday that North Korea put out an official statement, which is pretty extensive, and the BBC printed in its entirety, which I recommend reading. Um, it's It does not use objective language. It refers to the traitor as human scum, and um, it refers to... South Korea as a puppet many, many times. In fact, every time it says South Korea, it says that puppet. And then it refers to the U.S. and the CIA as terrorists. So it's pretty interesting week in um, CIA-North Korea relations. And so I just wanted to um, set that up a little bit. And um, I believe my colleague is going to talk about Pompeo's visit to South Korea. Yeah, well, week. so so uh, CIA director was just in South Korea yeah, so um, Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, visited South Korea. Um, not sure of the exact day, but he spoke with um, American diplomatic officials uh, and South Korean officials. Um, of course, since this is the CIA, they aren't going to broadcast what the CIA is doing, if they are doing anything. Um, he was also there, I think, with his wife, so it... Um, Just taking insights. <laughs> yeah. So, but it, I think when you put in the context of the increase um, in tensions with North Korea that we've seen over the past few weeks, uh, it seems to be part of a broader trend. Of, of, of escalation or of um, a, a, a trend of, of, well, of what? If not escalation, at least increased American, um, um, United States kind of an increased display Ameri- um, American presence in South Korea. Yeah, and you know, uh, something that we were discussing before in terms of making some of these things maybe more believable in terms of that uh, increased presence was uh, Rachel bringing up earlier too the fact that, you know, some of these things, you know, even though a lot of the, the statements out of North Korea we can usually write off as quite outlandish and probably not much truth to them um, in terms of our increased presence there currently and our historic use of assassinations or assisted in assassinations that such claims could actually be 
potentially more believable in this context. Right, and if they're believed by the North Korean population, then that it's the same as it being true, right? Absolutely, I think I think in terms of a country that that is the, that indoctrinated by its uh, its executives for sure. I, I was I was thinking about the when I was in Indonesia um, right after the Bali bombings and a story that I heard more than once was that well maybe you know who did this uh, well it's uh, Islamic terrorists but maybe it's the CIA um, and that doesn't seem to be true at all even you know even in the uh, kind of a history of kind of uh, extreme events that were carried out by the CIA that. There's no no merit to that, but it was the I guess the important point is it was believable, made believable by uh, the, the fiasco in '58, trying to uh, overthrow Indonesia, uh, and uh, of course '65 the uh, the coup and um, and then then and then backing uh, Suharto in the interim. So like the the, the it's, its past comes back to haunt it in in ways that it's not. Um, this is not the first time that uh, that, a, that a leader has tried to bend ass- an assassination attempt has may- been made or, or threats have been made, and so um, so it, it makes even wild claims. Uh, you know, they they can they have they find purchase. Yeah, I made note of um, the date of Ford's executive order one one nine zero five. It was nineteen seventy six, and then Carter followed up with an executive order um, that strengthened it few years later and and actually Reagan have, added on to that a couple years and, later and Reagan well. added on to it and since then there are at least three examples of um, aerial bombing attempts on um, elected leaders Gaddafi Milosevic and Hussein since then so um, yeah there are events that would make this seem believable to the North Korean population yeah for sure the assassination attempt well I mean Obviously, most North Koreans don't have access to the internet, but if you want to see the CIA's track record with overthrowing leaders, you can go onto their website and see, for example, Richard Nixon angrily discussing how to overthrow Salvador Allende in Chile, and I mean, just dozens of other cases. So it's impossible for the CIA to say, no, we would never do that to us. I also just think that this ties into, like, the idea of morality with the agency and, like, the NSA in general and the intelligence community in general, you know, to what extent is are these things justified, um, you know, especially, like, after 9-11, you know, we had, you know, a lot of these torture methods and stuff like that, you know, being tied in and saying, okay, we want to stop future terrorists, to, but what extent is that, you know, ethical? As an agency, well, you know, and that's that's something that uh, I did want to discuss in terms of this idea of assassinations versus targeted killings, and when it's allowable, when it's moral, when you know, when the United States wants to uh, condemn other nations for for these acts, I, just like we were talking in the uh, what is it, the Kuala Lumpur airport with the the assassination of uh, Un's brother, but. You know, then we look at, at some of the targeted killings that the United States has conducted, exactly the ones that Rachel brought up, as well as the ones that, you know, are currently going on. Uh, the CIA's drone strikes in Mogadishu ever since being uh, reauthorized to conduct its own drone strikes. And, and also furthering uh, Kelly's point in terms of what is, what is moral and what is acceptable when we, when we assassinate these leaders, does it just because just we say that they're a bad guy, does that mean... Uh, our, our actions were justified, and then a lot of times what comes after that killing, 
in a lot of the chaos that that typically follows these things, does that make our actions any less moral or more moral, which I, I don't see how you could make the argument for. I think it's hard to talk about morality when we talk about um, the CIA because I feel like there's been, maybe since its inception, this huge break between like the American, the American population's belief system and the CIA's actions. I don't think... I don't think that there's a um, moral code that encompasses both. So do you, are you saying that the, the American public tends to have a... Slippery. Yeah, or do you, or, or do you, do you mean that they, uh, they tend to be... They want us to do things more based on human rights and the CIA's track record doesn't necessarily follow that? The second. Okay. It's, although it's... Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending an amoral view of the intelligence agency, but it, it's one thing that I, when I was making the course, um, a tough question is to say like, okay, you know, let's do, we do a different country, different, uh, intervention every week. Um, like the, the moral outrage, it's easy, it's easy to say like, you know, and with the benefit of hindsight that this was terrible, this is wrong. Um, but it's almost, um, uh, it's not, it's not that that's not a useful, um, I mean, I expect everyone to have their own, make their own value judgments about, about should it or should have not have done that. But it seems like even, um, maybe a question to think alongside morality is, is what did it, what did it think it was doing? Like judge it by its own instead of an absolute moral code. That's I think probably easily for uh, easy for us to say like, that was probably not nice. Um, what did it think it was doing? Did it, did it, did it succeed by its own metric? So when it overthrew Iran, you know, did the short term with the short term payoff was like, well, we got rid of a kind of middling Musadik that was not fully on our side and we got British oil uh, secured. So short term, like maybe long term, um, not so great, like by its own, you know, if, if, if the goal it was to sort of American security to, you know, we get, we get, you know, our, you know, axis of evil, we get our greatest that we get, um, the, the backlash against the Shah we get. So the, um, so, I mean, I think it's good to, to think more about the, the morality. Um, but, uh, it's, it's also useful to think about, um, its own internal, the, in, its own internal morality or logic, like did, was that, was that good or bad? Um, I mean, did, did those, does that, uh, is that a frame of reference that you guys tried to uh, compartmentalize when you're looking at what it was doing to keep from getting outraged every week? Or Well, just echoing your point, like you just said, I feel like a lot of the case studies that we studied this semester, like Nate said earlier, they're very focused on short-term goals to where they overthrow a government or they do a coup or something like that, and all of a sudden they accomplish what they want right. to in the Mission short Mission accomplished, what could right, go wrong? Right, and then it's like, oh, you know, what now? Well, yeah, and I think that one thing that uh, I learned through the course was that when you when you examine each one in a vacuum and you look at it in its own independent situation and context, a lot of what, what actions the, the CIA or even just the U S government at large, uh, decides to do does appear to be the expedient decision does appear to be, you know, you can feel some empathy for, for their decision-making process. 
but the problem is, is that, you know, as even more than us as, as, you know, historians, you know, the U S government, when it's going to make decisions should probably also go back and look at the decisions that it's made in the past, because, you know, as a matter of expediency, it does seem useful to go get rid of Saddam Hussein. But as we've seen many, many times over, unless we're willing to put in the right leader that might not be on our side, it just devolves into chaos. And then what did we necessarily accomplish? You know, it was that, was that matter of expediency. Did, did the ends justify the means? Uh, and I also want to add in, I think tie it back to the point of does this morality of the CIA fit the, the morality that us, the American public thinks about it. And you look now, and especially during the cold war, the people, a lot of people in the CIA, even if, today we think they were wrong, believe they were part of a moral struggle against communism and that right. anything, and that because of that, anything that they did was justifiable to stop communism. And I think you can see it today maybe in fighting terrorism that, like, yes, this may be like, something that people would be uncomfortable with, but we're stopping some f- dark force that like otherwise would cause a lot of damage. Well, I think also what contributes to that a little bit is the fact that um, as the technological aspect of, of war and asymmetrical warfare has grown, especially out of the Cold War, it's become easier for the American public to to swallow some of these things because it's not it's not necessarily Vietnam where our, our, our guys over there are, are dying and, and you can watch the numbers, you know, add up in our fight against communism. But as, as we've moved to things like drone strikes or, or uh, uh, cyber warfare, it, you know, uh, what, what we're accomplishing might not be any more moral, but as long as we're not seeing a physical toll or a cost, I think it's become a lot easier for the American public to swallow things that we would probably consider, you know, in a vacuum studied independently by itself, pretty amoral. So the Obama administration took away, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the ability for the CIA to launch drone strikes on their own, and he gave that to the Pentagon. And one of uh, President Trump's first acts, executive orders, was to give that power back to the CIA. So when we're talking about morality, one thing that I I always think is interesting to think about is, is there any morality if you're acting under the assumption that everything you're doing and every step that you're taking will never be known? Um, and I feel like the CIA is being given this expanded power all of a sudden with um, drone launching capabilities, and I just wonder what you guys think about um, what this what this is going to look like. Well, I think one of like the major themes, too, that we talked about this semester is how does a secret intelligence agency operate in an open democracy? It seems like the two yeah. kind of ideas kind of like contradict each other. Mm-hmm. So I just think, I mean, I think that's kind of the reasons why the agency maybe made so many mistakes is that they didn't think that they were going to be known. So, you know, maybe that's the reason why they continue. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think they... Um you know the the they can't bring a, a knife to a gunfight is what the you know you you hear some of this rhetoric from the about 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 torture about black sites it's like well you know do you think um, our enemies are going to be um, you know following the Geneva Convention do you think they're going to be um, and and so you know we we've got to we've got to fight fire with fire we can't we can't with you know hand one hand tied behind the back and that's a common I think uh, that and the and the and uh, 
and, and Matt, maybe you want to chime in. You, you know, you look at a period, you study a, a phase in American history where we come off of like massive loss of life in a, in, in you know putting American soldiers at risk to the the allure uh, now of of uh, using using drones, using using uh, secret black ops to mm-hmm. to carry out our foreign policy. It's a lot. Uh, it's got to be a lot more attractive to a president, right? To you know, you don't have to send, you know, you don't have to draft, you don't have to send boys to war. Right. Well, and then that's been the kind of the trajectory, you know, over the decades and decades is that in whatever the war case may be, is that the proportion of, you know, soldiers dying in combat, you know, used to be extremely high. And, you know, with each kind of passing decade as technology makes it easier to, I guess eventually, like now, be kind of the armchair, literally armchair, yeah, uh, warrior. Um, that that the population is now taking the heavy uh, toll in in, um, in warfare. So, you know, we just saw it with um, you mean the civilian local civilian right civilian yeah. population. Yeah. Um, you know, four four thousand. Uh, yeah, I don't know the exact numbers with the most recent Iraq War. Four to five thousand U.S. soldiers. Uh, died there over what eight years or so, and yeah, I mean the estimates for civilians vary quite a bit, but you know some are as high as you know a, a million. Um, and if you look at something like the Civil War, which was in terms of casualties for soldiers, you know over six hundred thousand, but the civilian casualty rate is maybe about fifty thousand. So. Yeah, just you know, percentage-wise, it has shifted substantially, and yeah, when you don't have to put you know your son or your daughter in harm's way, it makes it maybe easier to be apathetic about war um, uh, for some. And yeah, I, does that kind of get at what you're? Yeah. Well, one thing um, I also think that a lot of times the the public forgets in terms of you know whether these things are. are acceptable or not is that you know when the cia is the one conducting this this drone strike and and the the people that are affected by it it blows up the school it blows up the the mosque and and when then they want to complain to the international community about the united states actions well when we keep these things secret and then the american community Mm -hmm. can't believe them doesn't believe them you know believes other other intel that they're they're getting from the ground that there was combatants killed in those situations while it becomes more digestible to the american public really all we're doing is is fueling those those anti-american sentiments because they can't get any sort of empathy or compassion um for for the the death and, and carnage that they're experiencing and i think it again it's it's not because it's because we don't have soldiers over there creating that destruction and we're seeing the effect on both american soldiers and the public over there when the cia is able to conduct these things in terms of drone strikes and the public can't get any sort of uh, emotional response from the international community, then, you know, it just fuels their hatred for, for the United States more. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, sort of an interesting case is looking at, uh, Jimmy Carter, who's coming out of, uh, you know, Nixon and Ford and kind of, um, the chaos sort of associated, uh, especially with Nixon and, you know, Carter is saying he's going to, you know, be more of this moral president and um, attempt to, you know, think, consider things like human rights are going to 
take uh, more of a center stage for him and his policy formation. And right, he has these this idealistic view of what can be accomplished. And yeah, there are some actual changes, but at the end of the day, um, he's still you know supporting uh, South South African apartheid government, you know South Korea, like all these other ones that maybe he thinks going in it's going to be easier to maybe make these moralistic changes, but then when he kind of gets in and realizes uh, how the system operates, uh, pragmatic, right, still in the Cold War in this instance, right, it's maybe it's harder to be a moral, in air quotes, leader uh, than than he thought it was going to be. And Right, he was, he, he on, on paper, he's probably the best example of, of one you might, if he, he's going to try to move the needle the most and probably wasn't very successful. Right, but yeah. he ends up pulling back and actually, you know, increases bluster with the Soviet Union. That, that probably late Carter era to early Reagan era um, is probably the second closest that the U.S. came to nuclear war with the Soviet Union, aside from the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, right, so his... Yeah. Yeah, he's got this idealistic strain that he, you know, attempts to bring into the government and foreign policy, but... Um, right in reality wise the change maybe was not so significant well how do you I guess how do you take how do you perceive this this apparent shift in Pompeo's rhetoric you know prior to the election even as as uh, Trump was the president elect you know we saw a lot of uh, people on the Trump side of the campaign you know cheering along WikiLeaks to, uh, you know, expose the corruption of the, the Hillary Clinton campaign and Hillary yeah. Clinton family. And now, uh, now he's, you know, he's deeming it, you know, the kind of a foreign, uh, provocateur. Yeah. So this is like a little bit of background. Like Nate said, um, during the election, um, Trump, often would use WikiLeaks. At one point, he even said, oh, I love WikiLeaks, and was, like, waving around documents and suggested <laughs> that they try and find more. And t- tied into this, he was also very hostile to the CIA. He would um, criticize the intelligence community in general and say that they had made a bunch of mistakes in the past. Um, then, as president-elect, when they released information about Russia that he did not like, he referred to them as Nazis. Um <laughs> And Mike Pompeo, uh, who is now the director of the CIA, um, was also okay with WikiLeaks. He tweeted, um, he tweeted in the past out WikiLeaks articles about um, Clinton and Obama. And now that he's in charge of the CIA, um, after the most recent batch of leaks, he went out, um, um, gave a speech that I forget where it was, but he was very, very critical of WikiLeaks. In particular, he was critical of Julian Assange. Um, and Pompeo was from Kansas, so he gave some line where he said, like, we know what false wizards look like in Kansas. Is that um, a Klan reference? I didn't understand that. Uh, it's a, I think it's a reference to um, the Wizard of Wizard Oz. Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes a lot more sense <laughs> than that. <laughs> uh, and he's uh, said that Americans who leak, um, or leaking doesn't give you, um, doesn't get covered by First Amendment rights. Uh, and he's also tied this all to the Russians. So it's a big shift, which I think could be read in a lot of ways, but at one level it seems 
quite hypocritical of the administration. I read that speech yesterday, I think, um, and I thought he was kind of giving the CIA a big out, too, because he was saying that Assange and Snowden and the like um, make the CIA's job so much harder and almost impossible. And I don't know, it almost seemed like he was setting himself up for, um, if not a stellar performance, then, you know, it wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I read it a little bit like that. You mean when when those leaks inevitably happen? That Right, or when intelligence can't be gathered, or, mm. yeah. Um, like how do you mean, uh, like, that it wasn't Mike Pompeo's fault, or... Yeah, that that's that's just how I read part of that speech, the speech that he gave. I think it was at Langley in April. Is that the one you're talking about? No, I was talking about one. You gave it at a okay, think different tank. speech. Um, are, you, are you talking about uh, Pompeo's? Yeah. Yeah, at the CS uh, Center oh, yeah. for Strategic Intelligence. Yeah, that that's the one. That one, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think I read it as part of a broader shift that Trump seems to have just allowed American foreign policy to kind of normalize in a lot of ways. Like, aside from his tweeting, um, you've seen Flynn go, uh, kind of more establishment types on the on the right taking positions within uh, the foreign policy-making apparatus, and that he's just allowing the CIA to kind of shift back to what it's always been doing, Um, Right. So after um, 9-11, Bush essentially gave the NSA authority to, um, like, spy on American citizens through, like, their cell phones and kind of not really, like, wiretapping, but just, like, record their conversations in an effort to uh, catch suspected terrorists. Yeah, metadata collection. Right. There you go. Thank you. Um, So basically, you know, when I, like, read these documents about this, read articles about this, you know, people were obviously upset, and then this debate sparked was, okay, you know, is this essential, you know, to what extent is this needed, or is it a violation of privacy for American citizens? So, in the most recent batch of leaks, which was referred to by WikiLeaks as Vault 7, there were over 8,000 documents, and they covered surveillance and hacking. I think the most well-known one was that uh, TVs could be ha- uh, Samsung TVs right. could be hacked. Uh, Watching you, Snowden's um, Edward Snowden says that there's evidence that the CIA has been involved in um, worked with the technology industry um, and manufacturing companies directly to place these weaknesses in cell phones and TVs and computers that they can access. Yeah, and actually, uh, just to cut in on that, I just heard that uh, apparently the the CIA, or no, I'm sorry, I apologize, uh, the FBI spent somewhere around $900,000 finally being able to crack into the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone because Apple wouldn't, wouldn't allow them. So the one, Kelly, you raised this earlier that you know, the, the role of, of a secret intelligence agency in a democracy. And um, as the uh, as a phrase that I've that I learned when I was in Washington, D.C., in the quote unquote, in our current political climate, um, that, uh, you know, things are things seem different. And maybe what is it we don't. Is that a fiction? Do we live in? I mean, do we live in a democracy? Maybe we don't like money that we live in an oligarchy. There's like the the the. Is is the problem the the gap between the re, the real and the ideal? Maybe the CIA is 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 a more honest, um, truthful reality of the of the of the country and the the values that we have. And these 
the we say that it's in contradiction with democracy you know but but those are just those are just religious beliefs almost those aren't the, the you know it's the difference between uh, you know, belief in practice is that is that too extreme, or I mean, or nihilistic? I, <laughs> I think that you know, I think that having an intelligence service like the CIA is necessary, especially when you're like the big superpower like the United States. But I think it's more about like responsibility as citizens. You know, before this class, it was kind of like you know, I didn't know much about the CIA. I kind of had this Hollywood depiction of it, like oh, it's a cool spy service. But, you know, le- learning all about these documents and stuff like that and learning about all the secrecy and lies that, like, happen in the agency, I think it's the responsibility of the citizens to know that and to hold them accountable. Now, my one question and my caveat to that is, is, and I kind of look at it in, in terms of the amount of uh, leaks that we've seen, especially, you know, how concerned Trump is with all the leaks that right. have gone on in terms of the intelligence community currently. Um, but when when does the leaking actually become too much? Because I mean, there there probably should be a certain element of secrecy. I think that a lot of people would agree with you that you know, the the government should work on the people's behalf, so the people's interests should be followed and its concerns should be you know given a lot of consideration. But at the same time, when when is it okay for there to be the secrecy? When is it okay for there to for for them to even potentially lie? Is it ever okay for them to lie? And you know, does that? does that harm us as a, a democracy or not? Well, I think kind of starting with what Kelly was talking about, like there's a reason that like I'm pretty sure almost every country on the planet has an intelligence agency. It's just like for better or worse how the world works. So I think people, it starts just kind of with accepting that, but then like Kelly said, like people need to be aware and understand what the agencies are doing and kind of think about what they believe should be successful and um, not successful. But to Nate's point about um, the more moral question um, and leaks, uh, I mean, intelligence, they're, they're inherently like need to operate in secrecy. So if some whistleblower just dumps a bunch of documents that reveal a bunch of contacts or um, agents then that can not only cause problems for the intelligence agency, but actually put people's lives in danger. And so, I mean, I, I, personally, I, I think there needs to be an, people, like, while sometimes, you know, leaks do reveal disturbing things, there are other points where you kind of have to question, like, like some things need to be kept secret. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it's interesting, you know, whether the the safety the personal safety of of foreign operatives is should be that that bar um because you know some people would obviously say that you know if this 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 vault 7 leak from wikileaks and you know the, showing how the cia can can uh use this metadata collection or even you know individual specific uh data collection you know is that uh, there's the utility for that um but at the same time you know is is it's Release to the public a good thing because now it shows that the CIA shows the CIA that you know someone like you know the Russian government very easily could have could have come into to possession of these things and so does it continually force the agency to uh, develop new you know new technological advances or is it harmful because it does force them to do that and uh, in the meantime between the old system and the new system it you know puts the American public in greater jeopardy. Oh, I think you're, that's a good point that it kind of keeps the CIA on their feet that if 
they know that people are going to figure out what they're doing, then they have to stay one step ahead. Although that can lead to them doing stuff that's even more secretive or maybe more disturbing in terms of being able to hack electronics. But I think you also brought up another point about leaking. And when you talk about Russia is that you have to take in who's doing the leaking and why they're doing it into an account, because it's one thing if someone notices a bunch of documents that they think is disturbing, maybe because the CIA is putting weaknesses in consumer electronics. But if somebody leaks that to another country um, and then hides in that country, and they're, but in a country that is objectively way less democratic than we are and sees those leaks as beneficial to its foreign policy against ours, then I think those leaks, that becomes like way more questionable if those leaks are okay. Rather than trying to put a course together that kind of laid out what I thought the in in each country instance the 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 CIA was up to or or, or my interpretation, I thought it was much more useful to just to to give some guidance, but to look at the documents themselves. And so we we went through um, in, in in each week a different sort of different case file that had. Um, you know, some sometimes thousands of many thousands of pages. Um, I didn't make them read all of those pages, but they could they could choose selectively uh, uh, from among those. But uh, to, to to look at the 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 cases themselves, um, I guess what how how did that did I guess did that work and did that uh, change um, uh, the way you viewed things and should should the public at large be actually looking at sources themselves rather than, you know, the, whatever, um, um, you know, news or, 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 or other mediators giving them that information? Um, I would say yes, uh, just because it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a more unbiased uh, source, but I do want to say that, I guess, because if you're looking at it through, you know, news media or a media outlet kind of has uh, more opinion thrown on it, whereas just the sources kind of just speak for themselves, you know? So I really liked, I really enjoyed looking at the sources and all the documents um, and expose the truth more about the CIA than I originally thought it would. Yeah, I'd be really interested also here, uh, you know, Rachel's reaction to this, especially as someone who, who does their graduate studies in, in English. It, just very curious how you see it from a, a non-historian perspective. To me, the answer is an obvious yes. The public should be reading documents, but they can. They're available. Um, how do you get the public to read them? I don't know. I think you have to get the public interested in reading the news before they become interested. Right, in there's it. a few steps to be done. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I mean, thankfully, uh, I, mean, thankfully I think uh, people's uh, attention is so much more focused on, you know, politics currently and especially the executive's uh, relationship with the intelligence community. So, you know, as much as our current political climate, uh, you know, might not be to our liking, it might also expose some things and force people's uh, interest to to rise in terms of this uh, subject. Nate, I'll say that for my midterm project, I did a lesson plan for second language learners of English um, focusing on the CIA. And I mean... I don't know if it was something that would ever be used in a classroom, but in doing so, I found 
a lot of um, resources that educators can use. So, I mean, there are maybe maybe these are some of the at least first steps for getting people interested in um, reading documents that are available in the archives. Maybe a silver lining to like sort of the whole sort of fake news kind of, you know, blowout uh, of late is that is that, yeah, um, maybe we should go look at the sources themselves. Like, I don't, you know, you, you, you don't know if you're being, you know, if you're being lied to, um, you know, by, by a news source. So, you, you know, if you, if you read something like, hmm, I just need to go check. But for the left and the right, frankly. Um, you might be lying, being lied to by your source, too. So whoa. you just have to. It's too complicated. <laughs> Point of view. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a clear, it's a clear window into the past. Any document is. Oh, a, it, it very much is. It's but a time capsule. It is. <laughs> What, what was their truth to them at that time, right? So you have right. to be aware of, course. <laughs> of all these things. What I wanted to uh, pop in and say, though, was that, you know, having done some some foreign policy research of my own in the past, seeing it's it's my, you know, my topic of interest, uh, especially with uh, the United States, with the Third World during the Cold War, none of this necessarily came as a surprise. The, the, the you know, awful, terrible things, the su- support of, of people that, you know, end up doing terrible things like death squads in South America and, and, you know, uh, brutally repressing elements of the population in Iran. But, uh, what, what going through these documents over such a large, uh, chronological time span really showed me was how often, uh, the CIA and just the, the government at large, it makes the same mistake that they that they have uh, you know a lot of these things that we talked about before a very expedient short term goal that that they want to accomplish that they think is to to their benefit by doing without really thinking through the long term effects the ripple effects that will happen as a result of that um, and it kind of also just demystifies this idea that the United States is altruistic on the in the international stage. You know, I think a lot of people think about the way that the U.S. acts uh, throughout the world in terms of the way that Jimmy Carter wanted the the U.S. to act, but not realizing that you know it actually acts in a much more brutal, repressive sense and kind of has for a very long time. So also going on uh, Rachel's point of, of creating like a lesson plan for this, um, just a little plug for something that'll be up soon, uh, myself and then one of the other uh, history graduate students that was, uh, that was doing some work in this course, uh, me and her have helped uh, Dr. Jones actually start uh, to develop a website for this course that is going to be 50% kind of for, you know, the students to, to be able to use and, and expand upon over time, but also supposed to be a resource to get this information out to the greater public. Um, you know, some of those things like Rachel brought up with uh, her lesson plan, we were going to put those things on there to show how, you know, how other teachers could could teach these things to their classes. It'll have uh, a lot of the the write-ups that we've done to go over, you know, what, what the documents taught us each week with a country. Um, it'll have a timeline and uh, interactive maps to be able to show where the, the CIA has conducted these, these covert operations uh, throughout, throughout the world in the, the post-World War II era. And then I, I kind of had a couple final thoughts based off what Nate said earlier. Um, first, I would agree that my, from this course, what I took away wasn't necessarily anything against in, the idea of intelligence agencies in, them, in themselves. I actually really strongly believe they should exist, but more that the CIA has just 
way too many times either been incompetent um, or short-sighted. And in terms of how it kind of ties into the history of foreign affairs, I think it actually, the CIA, more than being some kind of aberration, actually um, stems, like, a lot of what the CIA CIA has done is kind of stems from a lot of broader trends in the history of American foreign policy. I mean, you just look at what they've done in South America, um, that can, you can look back to the Monroe Doctrine and the interventions we carried out in the late 1800s uh, and before World War One, and the CIA is kind of doing things based on the same logic about stopping what we see as extremism or building a sphere of, inf- inf- um, sphere of influence in the region that is based around what we want less than what the South Americans want. Uh, and then another kind of what this course made me want to do was look at another, maybe take a look at in the same way that we looked at this, look at another intelligence agency from another country, maybe MI6 and see like, what have they done differently? Is there anything they're doing better to handle intelligence? Right. The, uh, um, the one of our main books we used was the Tim Wiener's Legacy of Ashes, uh, the history of the CIA, and uh, a pretty consistent theme is, uh, especially in the early days, the 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 how much we were getting just beat by, um, especially the the Russians, um, but but other intelligence agencies that so you know maybe an international look uh, is not a <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was um, that the book made me think about of that like because he talks about just how much more experience other countries had and that we never really developed the same culture around intelligence that they had. Um, right, from ground zero, really, that we tried to build it up after the, the Pearl Harbor. Well, um, th- let me thank everyone for, for joining us, and, uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, more more fun with CAA documents. And so, yeah, stay tuned to our check out our, check out our website. We'll put a link for it uh, when, we, when we actually have the, uh, when it's up and running. Um, but thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. See you later. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney and Chi Yu for production assistance and Mitchell Irwin for today's music. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you.